Hi, this is Day for Night with Karyatsvich, the series that looks at the intersection between theater and poetry in the Edgelands, in the wilderness. In today's episode, I'm going to be reading from a various texts by different writers, uh, taking a break from my own work and diving into um, other people's work that I admire uh, and that I think about. Um, and the first text is from a piece called Raymondo, R-A-Y-M-O-N-D-O, by the writer, playwright, Annie Siddons, S-I-D-D-O-N-S, Annie Siddons, Raymondo. It's published by Oberon Modern Plays, uh, 2015. And this is from the opening, uh, chapter one. And I'll start with that one and then we'll move on to some other pieces. From Raimondo, chapter one. A room full of vintage lamps, a Casio tone keyboard on one side, and a guitar station complete with guitarist, loop pedals, etc. on the other. In the middle, a microphone. Annie takes the month. Raimondo, theme tune. Raimondo and his little brother Sparky were locked in a cellar underneath their house by their mother when Raimondo was nine and Sparky was one. The cellar had a tiny milky window from which the boys could observe the swollen ankles and sensible shoes of passing commuters. It had a menagerie of spiders, earwigs and flies, Twice daily, there would be a knock at the door, and Raimondo's mother's maid, a sullen and utterly unimaginative woman called Mercedes, would bring to the boys a lettuce-based meal on a tray. Twice weekly, the bucket, into which Raimondo and Sparky evacuated their bowels and emptied their bladders, was emptied by that same culpable maid, who never once thought about whether what she was doing was okay. It was a tiny and attenuated life, mitigated only slightly by the finding of a small supply of vintage Playboy magazines in the corner. Raimondo tried. He tried so hard. He was someone who made an effort, so he read the articles in the magazines to Sparky in every conceivable accent and voice, and tried to structure his brother's day with a sense of improvement and joy. But after six forlorn years of striving and effort. Raimondo came to the end of his rope, sighed, and sat down. He's so young, Raimondo. He's only fifteen years old, and yet already the worst of ideas has entered his mind. How to leave this veil of tears forever, taking Sparky with him. This is a challenging idea, because the cellar, although dark and insalubrious, contains no convenient sharp edges nor any other means of self-destruction. Pigeon theme. At this point, three stories above him, another being is about to journey from this life to the next. It's a pigeon, not endowed with an excessive intelligence, who's got itself stuck in the yang to the cellar's yin, the bright glass scintillating penthouse in which Raimondo and Sparky's mother likes to lounge on a buckskin chaise dipping sourdough bread into oil 
finding no obvious point of exit from this shimmering palace of ostentation the pigeon tries the application of force over reason smashes into one of the thirty-six windows and promptly expires adding a much-needed splash of scarlet to raimondo's mother's neutral color scheme a timely gust of wind scatters the pigeon into the chimney and a serendipitous hole in the pipe sends it pell-mell down into the cellar where it lands with a dull thud right at the very feet of suicidal raimondo and his weak-chested brother sparky embers music in raimondo's soul the embers of the will to live are still feebly glowing although if this were a computer game he'd be on his last pumping little red heart and rapidly running out of time still there's something in the metallic tang of the pigeon's blood the softness of the feathers and the fact that something has happened to change the unrelenting sameness of their days that offers sparky and raimondo a tiny glimmer of hope in the old and golden days before daddy died and when mummy was happy mummy used to sew she had a real talent for it and she made raimondo an amazing applique quilt for his bed depicting his favorite characters woundman and shirley and the boy who raised his arm now raimondo having fashioned a needle from one of the pigeon's bones closes his eyes and remembers the action of mummy's smooth white arm as she used to sew and with his skinny snowy arm sinewy arm begins to copy it the process is really frustrating the feathers don't always do what raimondo's mind wants them to do and the thread which raimondo has pulled from his aged cardigan keeps coming out from the bone needle so that sparky with his tinier and more nimble fingers has to keep re-threading it now sometimes raimondo feels disheartened and always he's not entirely sure what he's doing but the vision he has impels him to carry on after seventy-two hours raimondo his fingers calloused and sore turns to sparky presents his handiwork and says sparky it's finished so what is it this act of needlework and determination what is this garment that Raimondo's mashed his fingers to create? It's a cape. Cape theme. Now you're probably thinking that this is some kind of super heroic narrative and that this cape's going to have some kind of incredible powers that are going to solve all the boys' problems. Well, it's not. It isn't. But that's not to say that the cape is not phenomenal because it is. It's just subtle. Now, what the cape does is this. It makes you feel okay. Now, the palpable absence of anything remotely okay in the lives of either Sparky or Raimondo means that the okay afforded by the cape is a big fucking deal. And this okay allows a tiny shift in their perception that's like a minute, minute, but audacious breeze entering an airless room. And by the time Mercedes comes with their slop, they're bubbling over with an unfamiliar feeling. Optimism. Why are you looking at me so funny, says Mercedes, when she comes with their slop. And what's that horrible-looking feathery thing? Oh, this, Mercedes, says Raimondo, is something I just finished making. Please put it on. 
Raimondo and Sparky watch anxiously as Mercedes puts the cape on. They scour her impassive face for signs of a shift. Mercedes? Yes? We'd like to go outside for a bit. Is that okay? Okay, says Mercedes, leaning her cheek coyly on the soft, feathery cape. Great! We'll have the back cape, too. Thanks. Okay. Now run, says Raymond to Sparky. Sparky flips as soon as they hit the street. He has no memories of anything except the cellar, so you can imagine the brain fry that occurs as soon as he breathes real, outside air for the first time. His neurons want to go in a million directions at once. He begins to scream really loudly, and Raimondo fears that someone might notice them and send them back to the cellar, so in the end, he gathers up the skinny, bony, snotty, wheezy, foul-smitting scrap of humanity that is Sparky and carries him on his back. On they go, and gradually Sparky begins to uncoil as he sees the warm yellow lights of the town and smells the delicious, dinnerish smells coming from the houses. And eventually, just as the boys leave the swanky part of town and are once again entering an area of shadows, dogs, and lost people, just at that point, at which the opulently scented air of the swanky part hits the bitter and sickly smells of the rough bit, creating a rancid scent cocktail, there's a cafe. So, in they go. And that's from Raimondo by Annie Siddons, Chapter 1, published by Oberon Modern Plays. And the next piece that I'll read from is from a play called Silent Planet by Eve Lee. Uh, and it's also published by Oberon. And I'm just going to check on the date. 2014. Uh, I'm going to read from uh, scene four of Silent Planet by Eve Lee. Heavy rain pounds outside the window of the interrogation room. Yorchak is slightly less warmly clad than the previous scene. Gavril is dressed as before. So there are just two characters in the scene, Yorchak and Gavril, and it starts with Gavril. And in the end, it seems, the man upstairs has read the novel, and he glanced the master eternal peace. What about his wife? They're not married, but she goes with him, too. What a nice story. It's about it, if you want to read it properly. The published version is a bit different to the one in the library, of course. Yurchak writes something down on the clipboard. He continues. Ugh, this wet chill. The worst kind of cold there is. Pontius Pilate, eh? And no wonder they put him through the ringer with a subject like that. I know. But I'm glad they get to heaven in the end. They don't get to heaven. You said they got to heaven. No. I said they were rewarded with peace. St. Matthew specifically says that they haven't earned heaven. They've earned peace. Does he say why? No. Well, I mean, what do you have to do to earn heaven? No, I mean it. 
Why do you think they didn't go to heaven? I think, uh, I don't know. It's a dirty world. I don't think Bulgakov could really believe in heaven with a life like that. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, who could write heaven? I would enjoy one day, if it were possible to read your writing. My stuff's nothing like that. It's about how the world really is. That book's about how the world really is. Yeah, you're right. I guess I mean, I don't ever think that what I write will get published. Why? I should really ask you the same question. No, I mean, why wouldn't you aim to get published? I don't want it. It's hard enough <laughs> to write anything good. And I don't think anyone who's been published without a little taken out here, a little taken out there, and then it's suddenly nothing. It's like nothing you ever. I just want to try hard to be better. I can't be thinking about all that. You know. So... You spend your life here, or somewhere very much like here. My work circulates in TypeScript. I circulate within the system. Are you going to wrap me out? What? For what? It's the patient's library. You are reading from the patient's library. If you imagine there are some form of impropriety going on here. No, I just... You should feel free to complain to one of the guards. Something might happen to me, I suppose, but it won't be nearly as unpleasant as what will certainly happen to you. I think the reason why the Master and Margarita can't go to heaven is because the Master tried to get the book published. What? Uh, I think the master has to pay the price for trying to work within a corrupt system. What is wrong with you? They make a deal with the devil. For fuck's sake, do you really think you can do that and get into heaven? Be quiet. Want you to know all about the books and not making head or tail of them? I'm going to write about this, you deluded fuck. It'll be called The Literary Secret Policeman. Yerchuk clouts him across the face. Gavril falls to the ground, face down. He does not move for a long time. Yerchuk sits at the table and makes notes. He ignores Gavril. Gavril twitches. He clears his throat, then spits some blood on the floor. Yerchuk, without looking at him, removes a flask from inside his uniform. He unscrews the top, kneels down, and props it against Gavril's lips. Gavril drinks. Yurchak removes the flask and sits back down, still without looking at Gavril. Yurchak speaks. Idiot. Now there's blood on it. I didn't. I'm sorry. I think you're probably also right about the ending. 
You have to believe in heaven to write it. A blast of martial music. Your check speaks. Time for work. It's so cold. Here. Your check gives Gavril the flask. Keep it. Where? Your check extends his arm. Gavril drains it. He returns the flask. A thunderous knock on the door. They both jump. Time for work. Gavril makes to go. Keep reading. I'll keep listening. Gavril nods carefully and leaves. The sounds of the prison return. And that's from a play called Silent Planet by Eve Lee. And the next piece I'll read from is uh, by a, a writer named Hannah Khalil. Um, and this is a, a piece called, uh, from a piece called A Negotiation. Uh, it's published by Methuen Drama uh, 2022, a collection of Hannah's work. Uh, Hannah Khalil Plays of Arabic Heritage is the title of the volume. Um, and again, this is from one of those plays. It's called A Negotiation. This is from the opening of the play. There is one woman in the space. And it begins. Don't. Leave her alone. Don't touch her. She's old. Please. Leave her. No. Wait. Listen. Let me tell you. I've seen it, heaven, a line, it's just a line, one above, one below, but together they make magic, and then two holes, oval, dark inside, holes where her eyes used to be, empty, should make me feel empty, Somehow, though, they look inside me. The shape, the lines, the first face. Beautiful, beautiful. And in my pocket, I touch. But that's too far. Why am I here? I thought about joining the army. Don't laugh. They have plenty of women, and they'd want me. I speak Arabic, know the customs. But coming here as part of the British Army, the occupying force in my country, too much. Parents would disown me. And truth is, I have no stomach for destruction of any kind, even to protect what I love. So, I bided my time, went to university instead. No, but uh, that's not far back enough. Wait, father. Yes, my father, a pharmacist, went to university in the capital, respected, always working, a worker. Only saw him at Ramadan. Big man, loved his food. Religious, too, like you. Respected Ramadan. But it killed him. Fasting, a torture. Someone of that size should be okay for a few hours on water, but not him. It was agony. He would wait for Iftar, staring at a clock with the date in front of him. When the second hand hit the hour... Eid was the only holiday. 
father mother and brother all get into the car and drive to a special place with a picnic baba beeps the horn in time we're there our valley bags of food on a mat and eat and eat and eat i'm full i can't move Ugh. but father takes time mama we're bored i'm reading we're bored in this heavenly valley go and hunt this place is generous filled with gifts the peasants called it melagit seek and you will find she's right i find a coin mama said we must bring it to the museum in the capital where it belongs the woman at the desk said i'd done something important that the coin belonged to all of us tarath heritage Every Eid, it was a tradition to try and find something. The final time we went, just before we left, you guessed that, I think, that my family and I left and went to the West. I find something, small and shaped like a, like a very, very tiny rolling pin. It has engravings on it. I don't know what it is. I want it. I keep it in my pocket always this isn't fiction you know it's the truth i know my skin is pale but we're the same i'm from here too you're so white are you mixed your accent is strange i am from here this country a town in the south that's famous for its perfumes ah you know it don't you it's not there anymore so now a little girl England, cold, wet, no cheeks pinched, no hair gently tugged, no one sees me. So I look elsewhere. Books try to find out what my mini rolling pin is. The history teacher at school sees me holding it. Where did you get that? Kinder egg. It doesn't look like plastic. Show me. I'm afraid. He'll take it. He holds out his hand. I shake my head. It's mine. Please. I squeeze open my fist and his eyes light up. In his office, a big book, pictures. Here, he cries triumphant, it's some kind of seal. A cylinder seal. It might be a Syrian. You'd have to go to the British Museum to check. So, my mission to get to London was born. I had to go, I had to know, find out more, learn about my treasure. But they say, no, Baba has lost weight. The food tastes different in England. He's a supermarket assistant now. Mom just disappears into her books. When his teacher offers to take me to London, Baba says he will do it. He has some pride left. So, a military operation. Ollie stays with a friend. We get two trains, plan the route, buy the tickets. They're nervous. Never like traveling since the big trip here. Lazem Nenzel. Yula. Mo. Mo. Na. Na. Be. Holborn. Daughter, what do you think? I look away, pretend not to hear. Mom hates the escalator. She says the Arabic prayer. I don't want people to think I'm with them. I'm relieved to get above ground and weave through the streets until there. It opens up in front of us. The British Museum, a fortress, strong, permanent, like it's always been there, will always be there. Comforting to think that. I look at my parents. They look scared, like this is a place of interrogations, torture, not beauty and history. I drag them in. A security guard checks us. They look guilty. The bag is full of food. He looks at the food, then lets us in. 
and heaven, I see it, her, that face, a line, then one above, one below, lips, softer lines, trace the distance from lips to nose, two holes, oval, dark inside her eyes, the mask of Guarca, earliest representation of a human face, it says, the first face. My hand goes to my cylinder seal, habit, then a flash. This is where it belongs, with all the other seals, with all the other history. It will be safe here. I turn to find my father, tell him what I want to do. Leave it where it belongs. But he's in the corner, face to the wall, like a child. My mother whispers to him. He, he's crying. They go. I don't want to leave her. That face. But I have to. And that's from a play called The Negotiation by Hannah Khalil. And this next selection is from, I don't think I've read from this play before on the podcast. Um, it's a play I'm quite fond of, but I think one that um, sometimes uh, doesn't get mentioned as much. Uh, it's a play called Adler and Gibb by Tim Crouch. It was originally done at the Royal Court. Then um, it's toured a couple of venues since then, since it first premiered. Um, it's a really fabulous play, um, as all the plays here are that I've been reading from. Um, this one is from 2014. It's also published by Oberon Books. Uh, and I'm just going to read from the opening, because I think it's probably the easiest way to, to kind of um, walk through it. So again, this is from Adler and Kid by Tim Crouch. Act one, the stage is almost empty. As the audience enter, two children, approximately eight years old, are somewhere on the stage. They are doing coloring books or just hanging out. Throughout the play, they will be directed in their actions by a live voice, which they hear through headphones that they wear at all times. A kind and attentive voice, the voice of someone rehearsed in the role. When the language in the play becomes too adult, they can listen to music through the headphones. There is a freedom to the quality of this empty stage, an unformed sense, an open sense in which anything is allowed, a playful sense. With the audience in, the children sit on chairs at the back of the stage. A young female student enters and stands center stage. She is dressed individually, uh, freely. A canvas satchel with badges and slogans on, for example. A a woman's movement symbol on her jacket, for example. The student takes her place at a lectern. The student is a younger version of the character Louise. The student reads from a formal-looking paper. The student speaks into a microphone throughout. The student begins. Thank you. Um, Candidate name, Louise Elizabeth Maine, as in Lion. Candidate number, 07523, New Jersey, Eastern Region. Date, May 19th, 2004. Is that how you say it? 2004? 2004? 2004? Um... 
The declared principles of grading for this paper are taken from the exam board's Eastern Region Directive found in their October 1997 guidelines. The scoring rubric referenced includes the score scale descriptor from Appendix 2C. Quote, an accurate and thorough explanation of how an artist or artifact represents the culture in which it was produced. First slide, please. Sam and Louise enter in robes facing out. The children approach Sam and Louise. Sam and Louise remove their robes and hand them to the children. The children sit back down. Sam and Louise are in underwear. The student continues speaking. Now this presentation is about the late American artist, Janet Adler. In 1996, Janet Adler was described by the art critic Dave Hickey as the most, quote, ferociously talented and uncompromising voice of her generation, end quote. She died last year in May 2003. The exact date is unknown. And there have been questions around her death, which I will also try to address in this paper. I have chosen Adler for my study because I am an admirer both of her work and what she represents to me and for my generation. Janet Adler challenged artistic orthodoxy and has inspired me to be true to myself and to recognize my own creativity as a young woman and the creative potential and freedom that is within us all. Next slide. Lines are delivered out, facing out, no adopted accents, no gestures, no actions. These are lines between Sam and Louise. You're wearing a blue blouse. I'm wearing a blue blouse. You're wearing a blue blouse. I'm wearing a blue blouse. You're wearing a blue blouse. I'm wearing a blue blouse. You're wearing a blue blouse. I'm wearing a blue blouse. You're wearing a blue blouse. I'm wearing a blue blouse. Keep that focus. You're sweating. It's hot. No commentary. You're sweating. I'm sweating. You're sweating. I'm sweating. You're sweating. I'm sweating. You're sweating. I'm sweating. Can we go into something? Louise. Sam, can we, before we get out? Don't try to be interesting. Interesting. Don't be interesting. I'm not being interesting. Shake your shoulders. Ha! Ah. Try the seduction. Scene 14. The loft scene. Here? You want to get out? Do it outside? You want the walk? You want actions? Just the lines. You want the accent? Sure. I'll read in. You want tears? I want truth. Truth is tears. As the student reads, the children bring in items of clothing for Sam and Louise who put them on. The children sit back down. The student continues speaking. Um, a true story. Uh, my mom, who is an artist too, amateur, oils. My mom once served Miss Adler in a diner on 2nd Avenue in 1995. And we still have a napkin that Adler um, doodled on. Here it is. This is the real thing. The student presents a Ziploc bag with a napkin in it. I was only a kid, but it's the first time I remember being aware of 
um, it was uh, just after Adler had turned down a commission from Goldman Sachs, and she was in all the papers, and my mom asked Miss Adler to sign the napkin, and although she declined, here's a photo of her seated at a table on that day, wearing her distinctive blue er, blouse with that napkin. The student presents a photograph. Now, it's interesting to present this object of belief and to consider what cultural and um, commercial value this artifact might possess alongside its photographic authentication. Next slide. Speech delivered out, facing out, no gestures, no accents, no actions. Quicker than is natural. Starting with Louise. This is a sequence between Louise and Sam. Starting with Louise. Oh, honey, don't you feel it, do you? It will all end us. And with us, you know, with only us, you and me, you know that too, don't you? We will be like climbing partners, roped together. If one of us goes, then they will pull the other with them, gladly down into the crevice. Tears? I can't. Jesus, Louise, she's gladly down into the crevice. Say something. Say something. Say something. We work this. Your voice is like heat. The blood rushes to those parts of the body, and I am lightheaded. I should go home. You are home. Really? Don't you feel it? Your journey is over. They kiss. 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 What's blocking you in the scene? You still scared of the kiss? Is that it? Fake the kiss. You can't fake a kiss. Sure you can. Be clear about your objective. What do you want from here? What do you want? Identify your obstacle and use your intention to overcome the obstacle. Do what you want to get what you want. You're avoiding me. I'm avoiding you. 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 I'm switching off the engine. You're switching off the engine. No. I'm just saying, I'm switching off. I knew that. Make the most. I knew that. How are you feeling? Nervous. Keep that. As the student reads, the children take more articles of clothing to Sam and Louise to put them on. Louise will wear undergarments as if getting ready to put a costume on over them. She will put on a wig cap and insert fillers into her bra. Sam will wear regular clothes. The children sit down again. The student keeps speaking. Now, Janet Adler died last year in May 23, 2003. The circumstances of her death prompted media speculation about the nature of her relationship with her partner, Margaret Gibb. Gibb collaborated with Adler on much of her later work. You know, in 1998, the critic Arthur Danto described Gibb's influence as negatory and has even hinted that she was in some way responsible for Adler's later deformalization. Danto describes Adler's work as renormalizing the phenomenology of production away from a specialized form and towards a naturalized impulse slide. In 1999, the two women walked away from the contemporary art world, issuing the slogan, Shoot the Wounded, Save Yourselves. Slide, please. It's just a section from <laughs> the first scene of Adler and Gibb by Tim Crouch, published by Oberon Books. Um, that collection is now, you can also find with Methu and Drama. Uh, so that's uh, four different pieces that somehow, in my mind, Speak to one another. Uh, Raimondo by Annie Siddons, Silent Planet by Eve Lee, A Negotiation by Hannah Khalil, Adler and Gibb by Tim Crouch. And uh, please forgive uh, any moments of um, mispronunciation along the way uh, in these readings um, done on the fly. 
but uh, I wanted to just, I love sharing work by artists that I admire and um, felt that as we're coming to the close of season two of Day for Night, that it would be a lovely thing to end the season with uh, some work that still exists and that you can seek out in published form. Day for Night will continue, season three, very soon. Um, if you're out there listening, um, thank you for being on the Day for Night journey. As always, this is about you and I in this theater. You there in the dark, and I here, wondering who you are. Thanks for listening to Day for Night. <laughs>